Meg, look at this place. Oh, this place is like a mansion. It's like a mansion. Look at all this stuff. Look, I see something over there. Something with them. We'll make something out of them. We'll make some money out of them at least. To go, lots of homes we ain't been to yet. On the west side, the southwest side, Middle East, rich house, dog house, outhouse, old folks' house, house for unwed mothers, halfway homes, catacombs, twilight zones. Looking for techniques, turntables to gramophones. So take a last lick of your ice cream cone and lock up what you still want to own. But please be kind. almost any issue of the Canadian magazine and in the back you'll find a comic strip called Doug Wright's Family. This little family situation comedy has been enjoyed by young and old alike for years. We're happy to have with us the creator of this comic strip, Doug Wright. You remember the very first cartoon strip that you ever sold? Yeah. I uh, was in the art director's office 
and there was a note on his desk from the editor of Weekend and a cartoon out of Punch by David Langdon of a little English boy getting a great big black pot on his head. It had four legs sticking up, you know, and little, his, his own little legs underneath. And his mother called a policeman, a London policeman with a big tall helmet to come and help. And he scratched his head and the, I think he sucked his finger. Then he tapped the pot, I remember, and he finally got it off somehow. And in the very last picture, the little boy had the black pot on again. And the note from the editor said to the art director, couldn't we do something about the awkwardness of kids? So I went home and my mother told me a story she'd been told by, I lived with my mother in an apartment in Montreal then. And the old, old lady next door had a couple upstairs from her with two little kids and they used to thump and bang on the floor, something terrible. And one day she had banged back with a broom on the ceiling, rat, tat, tat, tat. And they banged back again in the same rhythm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. She did her, her, her banging didn't do any good. Yeah. So I drew that and they bought it. They liked it and they bought it and somebody liked it and uh, wrote them a letter. Not many people write letters to the papers. That's true. But the, ca the cartoon situations that you're doing now, uh, are they taken from actual incidents that happen in, in your family? They used to be. Now the kids have grown up now and they don't do those little kid things anymore, although they, uh, they are helpful with suggesting ideas. You see many kids doing any of the things which happen in your strip? Well, mostly, yeah. The crazy kid things? Yeah. When you sit down to produce a comic strip, how long does it take you to produce a finished strip from start to finish? It takes me all day. It takes people two seconds to read it. They don't understand that it takes all day to draw it. Do, mm -hmm. you know, uh, invent it and draw it. But There's one question you've probably be, been asked time and time again, and I'd like to clear it up once and for all. The two little boys in the comic strip, Doug Wright's family, why are they always shown as being bald-headed? Well, I started out 30 years ago in 1948, and our own kids were bald in those days. We took them to the barber every two weeks and had their heads shaved. We've got pictures of each one of them weeping. They hated it, but they hated the, having their little bean shaved. Was that in the days of the, the tiny brush cut? Yeah. This is uh, Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. I'm talking to uh, Brad Mackay, um, who is the one of the editors. Are you the key editor? Editor? Of the Doug Wright collection? Oh, co-editor. Co-editor. How, uh, how it's done. Alphabetically, I come first, but... There we go. Let's be fair. Seth probably did... Uh, he did... He did uh, anyway. He did the legwork. He did the heavy lifting in terms of uh, compiling it, but I, in, in actual fact, me, Chris... And uh, Seth were kind of co-editors uh, for whatever reason. Chris didn't want his name on the book like that. So. He's uh, a humble guy. I, I I could tell. Yeah. Um. So this is the we're talking about the the wonderful first of two volumes. That's the plan. Of uh, the the yeah. complete, not the complete Doug Wright, but the complete. Um, the collected. The collected. Both C words, but mean completely different things. Yes, because the complete this isn't would be, uh, overkill. I think. Yeah. Uh, collected, yeah. So it's like a kind of a hand, hand selected, uh, hand picked of the best of uh, 30 odd years of, uh, of Doug Wright strips. Well, it's, it's looking specifically at his personal 
strips, like not him doing other strips like um, he had done before or during when starting that particular strip. Um, no, there's, there's some early stuff in there. There um, is some, but it's not the focus. No, the focus is his more personal work. Although, I mean, I'm more invested in it, I suppose. I'm probably biased, but I, I, I'm interested in anything he did. He seems to be kind of this... Uh, he's got like... He's like an octopus or something. He covers so many aspects of, uh, of kind of the unspoken uh, history, or the untold history of Canadian comics, because he, he took over... Uh, Bird's Eye Center, which was a Jimmy Fry's uh, uh, a Jimmy Fry's strip from kind of like the Gasoline Alley of Canada, and he took that over and kind of ghosted it for years, which was and that stuff alone for twenty years he did that, and I, I think I've we, I think we have he kept copies of of all of those strips of the weekly strip as well, and that was a revelation for me. I'd love to see a book <laughs> of that too, um, but yeah, no, the book a week in, in as a whole is mainly focused on the Nipper uh, Doug Wright's family stuff. Uh, yeah. So maybe let's start out with who was Doug Wright and why was this man important to our Canadian identity? That's a good question. He, he, um, Doug Wright was a, a British-born Canadian. He was born in Dover, England, and then came here when he was 18 or so, lived in Montreal for half his career, moved to Burlington later. And he was of, a, of an era of cartoonists that's... Uh, just doesn't really exist anymore, which uh, is just just a solid workhorse of a guy, like completely unpretentious. Um, you know, he considered himself, you know, an artist who worked nine to five kind of thing, and he would turn out uh, amazing productivity. You know, like I, I there's a clip of him somewhere talking about his process for you know how long it takes for him to do a never strip, and to him it was like a whole day from idea to execution, inking and everything. And he thought this was, you know, you know, so like almost, about, you know, it takes a long time, but I can't, you know, guys, today, if that week, it probably take the whole week to do it, right? Joe, so, Matt, we're looking at you. Well, Joe's the, Joe's <laughs> the, Joe's the anti-Doug Wright, actually. He's the bizarro Doug Wright. He's the opposite, right? Yeah. But um, Seth has said this before, that his sheer kind of uh, work ethic just puts, uh, puts modern cartoonists, would just make them make them uh, blush, you know. So he was just a really hard-working cartoonist, and he, uh, when he got, he always wanted to be a cartoonist, and he got here, and he was doing a horrible uh, quotidian job at uh, Sun Life in downtown Montreal, which most illustrators would probably love, because it was a regular gig, and it was a pretty solid, you know, Sun Life was one of the biggest corporations in Canada at the time, but he, uh, he hated it, and uh, he just plugged away right through the war. He got, uh, you know, he, he got wrapped up in World War II, and he, you know, anyways, he went through the whole process and, and managed to luck out and, uh, and get a, just a wash of work about in the late 1940s. So, um, yeah, so that's who he was, and uh, I think he's important to, to uh, Canada on a number of levels in that he came into his own at a time, that post-war period, like 1948, 1949, that was just on the cusp of uh, kind of the old Canada, new Canada. I, I, I like to think of it as the the kind of pre uh, the time when people became consciously Canadian. I don't know if that happened in, like during Expo '67 or not. When we uh, got our pardon. When we got our new flag. Yeah, probably around then too. Was that '64, '65, or something? Something like but that. But it, it's just when you see his stuff, it's um, and this is kind of common of, of uh, some of his contemporaries as well. But his stuff is kind of unselfconsciously Canadian. Um, you know, I imagine if, if somebody like Doug Wright were to have a strip today. 
and it was set in the same sort of thing where it was a typical Canadian family, it would be awash in, like, Canadianism, you know, like, um, you'd probably have a pet beaver or something, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And the kids would be playing pickup hockey every day and, and, you know, debating the merits of the Canadians versus the Leafs versus the Senators, blah, blah, blah. Stopping for script, Tim Hortons. Par- and yeah, yeah, exactly. You'd have Tim Hortons, you know, jokes or something, but just horrible stuff, uh, um, well, not horrible, but just kind of pretty simple <laughs> stuff. But back then, uh, th- th- uh, it just existed, you know. It existed in this kind of, uh, I think, a wonderful time where the strip was, um, you know, every now and then, you know, there's a couple of strips where he's taking his kid, obviously, to a CFL game, you know, and the kid's all wrapped up in a blanket and they're, they're chill, you know, and stuff like that, like where it's Canadian, but it's not, you know, and every now and then the kids will play hockey. And, but it's not, they're not laying it on, he's not laying it on thick. Um, so what you get is this really, um, it's almost, somebody smarter than me said this, but it's almost like a, like a documentary of Canadian life from that, that period in time. Because, um, you know, he's documenting these things that are happening to him and the people around him. So you get this really interesting kind of snapshot of that period. Um, it's even made, the documentary link is made even more strong when you look at his art, because it's, it's, it's just, to me, it's, it's such an accomplishment that he manages to, you know, he captures everything with such a perfect eye, and he had no real formal art training. So the, I think the confluence of all those things gives you gives you this really interesting kind of uh, 20, 30-year snapshot of, of Canada as a whole, you know. Um, so yeah, I think that's interesting. The fact that he was more or less um, on the brink of uh, kind of historical extinction <laughs> um, makes it even more interesting for me. I know it does for for everybody else involved in the book too. So. What what's interesting is that that whole documentary idea is that the specific Canadian identity um, it is that developing uh, suburban consciousness, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it's not steeped in Cold War milieu. I guess so to say that you would see in some American stuff. Yeah, no, it doesn't have that as much. You don't really see... It's funny, because you don't see that... Um, I mean, I didn't really pick this up after reviewing my notes, but you don't see him really getting political, right? No. He was, from all accounts that I have, he was he was he he had very strong political views um, in his real life, and he actually tried that out later. He had a editorial... Well, he had an editorial... Kind of an editorial strip, a weekly panel in the Montreal Star in the 60s, and later he did it um, for the Hamilton Spectator as well. But those just uh, fall flat for me. Like, they're really not. Like, here's an example of, you know, where he's got a chance to kind of, you know, speak to something important, you know, some political stance he has, and he gets to use words as well, you know. He's not doing a (laughs) pantomime. But remarkably, they just, uh, it's the most bizarre thing. They just, they don't work. Um, there's a few of those in the in the current book, and I'm sure there'll be more in the second one. But uh, you know, beautifully drawn. But in terms of execution and stuff, for some reason they just they just fall flat. I don't know why that is. Uh, you know, uh, maybe because <laughs> I don't know. Maybe politics are boring. I have no idea. But I know he was very political, and he was very invested in that. He talked about these things. But well, what were his strong political viewpoints? I think he was. I think he was fairly. Uh, I think he was fairly conservative. I think coming from uh, considering his uh, his background, kind of a British background, he was. Uh, I don't think he had a lot of time for artsy fartsy stuff, you know. Um, and I and I think he was uh, he was a no nonsense kind of 
you know, get to work kind of guy. I think he, he, he goes without saying that he, he probably hated the whole hippie thing in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> like, probably completely, you know, you see that a bit. He did these other, he did about four or five other strips throughout the 60s and 70s, and uh, he really kind of lets it loose there, you know, kids with long hair and the whole nine yards, you know, making fun, of that whole, making fun of that whole scene. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say he was he was fairly conservative, but I also think he was kind of a, a Lizometh guy. I think he liked talking about stuff, but I don't think he, uh, you know, I don't think he was a, a raging uh, Conservative, like conservative in the Canadian context. Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think <laughs> Which so. is completely I think different a, from American conservative. If he had to, you know, if he had to, back then, if he had to uh, sign up for a political party, it probably would have been uh, the progressive conservative. But uh, I don't know now. I have no idea. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I think I think he tended to be more conservative. But that was probably more of his, of his a generational thing. But I don't think it was specific to him. You know, kind of reminds me of my dad at the time as well. Was more or less. Tell me about your interest in Doug Ray, where that came from. Uh, I probably started when I was a kid. I, I could trace, by, uh, trace back to it. Um, my dad, I guess I read it. I delivered the Montreal Star for a while as a kid, growing up in Ottawa. So I would see it in there, because um, it had a fairly wide reach. Um, and then uh, I, my dad, at some point, brought home, there were little tiny collections, crummy mail order collections and he brought one of those home at some point and that's uh being that i have an older brother um when i was younger two boys in our in our family um i totally took to it plus he didn't need any words right so it was a, a quick read and uh, i became obsessed with it and i'm sure i got my hands on the other copy so i i, I remember it from then and being very uh like extremely bonded to it that and peanuts were kind of my my pole stars, as it were, when I was a kid. But then um, I grew up, and uh, you know, life just kind of overtook it, and it kind of slipped into the dustbin of my mind. <laughs> and then I don't know. At one point, when did I move to Toronto? I moved to Toronto in '99, and I was a reporter at the National Post, and I started doing. Uh, this was the the, the the prehistoric age for comics. Uh, coverage. I was thinking about this last night. Was that that's where I got to know Jeet here because Jeet used to write for them as well. Mm-hmm. And getting stories about uh, they were one of the first national papers to 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 kind of open the doors to stories about comics and cartoonists. But um, it was hard. It was like you know you'd get one maybe once a month or or two a month. You know, <laughs> it was it was really it was like oh we already ran one you know last month by Jeet or something. You'd be like ah. Anyways, you uh, beat me to it. But Jeet. Um, uh, so yeah, no. Anyways, um, so we both him and I were kind of uh, uh, trying to get stories in there about uh, comics and stuff, and uh, I managed to do one about uh, Seth and Joe. I think it was one about Seth and Joe and Chester, the Toronto Three, as I called them yeah. back when. And I think it was when Joe was moving away. So I did a little story about that. Went out to their kind of their last uh, sushi lunch, blah blah blah, and then I just you know. I, I, I've read their comics for years and, uh, you know, and, you know, idolized them a bit and then I got to know them as people and I just went from there and it sat at one point invited me out to, to uh, his place in Guelph and uh, unbeknownst to me, he was inviting me out to uh, to kind of pitch me on this idea of doing a book about Canadian comics <clears throat> and that was the one, there were seven people he suggested in this and that was the one person 
that jumped right out at me that I actually knew of the other people. I don't think I'd ever heard of at that point, but uh, Doug Wright, when I started looking at some of the strips and the strips he had collected from his files, it, uh, it, it shocked me because all of a sudden I had this repressed memory of all these... Uh, <laughs> a good <about> repressed memory. <laughs> a good repressed memory, not the bad kind. A good <laughs> positive repressed memory of all these strips. Um, and I think I'd even kind of uh, commingled them or confused them in my mind. There were a number of strips that I had in my mind I, I, I had assumed it actually happened to me and my brother and then I realized it wasn't true at all it was just they were originally Doug Wright strips and somehow they were so true to life to me as a kid that I had kind of adopted them as my own you know and it's funny because I remember telling them to my older brother oh remember that time we were by the river and dad had parked the station wagon you got a station wagon just like the station wagon of the car and we were chucking rocks into the water and we hit those you know those fishermen, but this, this is a Doug Wright strip, and, uh, you know, and then they came roaring out, and Dad was, you know, in trouble, and you were all laughing and stuff, and he said, I have no idea what you're talking about, you know, that never happened, and I thought he was crazy, and I realized it was just because I, I had taken these strips to be, um, you know, as my own, somehow, my own personal history, so, so that was my, that was kind of my reintroduction to, uh, to Doug Wright, I think. Does that explain my history with him? Yeah. It goes a little deeper, I think, too. I, I think, uh, um, the original kind of piece I wrote for the collected Doug Wright was it ballooned like it got much bigger. It's I, a I very know. interesting in-depth uh, introduction. Perhaps m- too much. <laughs> <laughs> you I know? don't think so. Well, I, 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 I'm afraid you know my wife would read it and she said, "You really need this whole section on Jimmy Fry's." Like, who the hell cares about Jimmy Fry's? You know. But to me, I just felt. Uh, I hope I'm wrong, but I just felt like. I, I became very connected to him as a, as a family man because I'm a, a, yeah, I have a young family now and stuff. Um, and I became connected to him as a Canadian and as a, somebody who creates something. And I just felt like, uh, you know, uh, and Seth and I would talk about this, I felt like I was getting this one shot, you know, at doing this guy justice. So, uh, so I just kept digging and digging, you know, and putting more in and more in, which I, I, I have to check with Drawn and Quarterly, but I think that's partially one of the reasons that the, uh, their font is... Uh, so microscopic, microscopically small because <laughs> I had put so much in, you know, um, but I had to stop at one point because it's okay, uh, stop. So hopefully I'm wrong and hopefully, you know, somebody will write, uh, you know, the definitive biography of him. But I just felt, that I think there's that connection when somebody ends up being a biographer of somebody, um, like the Shelf biography by, um, by what's his name? Uh, Starts with an M. Uh, yeah, I can't remember his name now. It's okay. Something. I'm in the midst of that now, and that's another example where he's gone so in depth. I mean, um, it's, you know, I'm glad I didn't read that before I launched into the Doug Wright thing. Or the uh, R.C. Harvey Milton Kniff biography. Oh, I haven't read that yet. Is that good? I, I won't read it. <laughs> Why? <have> time. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's too big. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, maybe this is the perfect, uh, you know, 15, 16,000 words. Um, you know, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's perfect. I don't know. It is, and the the really neat thing about how it works with the book, because the book is predominantly silent, so yeah. it, it does balance it out, oh, where you have this in-depth introduction, and then you have this, you know... Largely silent strips, yeah. Yeah. Maybe filling in the, the gaps. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 in a perfect world, you know, uh, looking at it in a perfect world, I figured people would pick it up, you know, and read it, read the biography, and then 
after knowing that about Doug Wright, I think your uh, interpretation of the strips is different if you know a bit about his life. But I don't think I would do that. I think if I got the book, <laughs> you know, it's like Jeet's great uh, intro, the Gasly and Alley books that uh, TNQ has also done. Like, mm-hmm. he's great, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's an awesome writer and he's a great researcher and a great academic, but, you know, I, I don't read them first. Like, I, I want to look at the strips, you know, and then I'm I go back, go back and read them later. See, know? I'm the opposite. Yeah. Okay. Good. Oh, yeah. I always because uh, he, he he has such an understanding of the work that he's writing about. He mm-hmm. finds all these interesting little nuances that really add to what you're reading, mm-hmm. and it's very he's very good at picking that specific work and kind of finding a theme within that work and analyzing that. Well, he's got the he's got the mother load of. Uh cartoonist stories there with King Mel, right? So yeah. He's got that whole story about them essentially giving up the kid and then, you know, him writing for years about, uh, you know, this fictional relationship between this uncle and this young kid, you know, who was just found on the doorstep. I mean, it's, when he told me that story, I was just blown away. That's a real, that's gold. That's, uh, yeah. that's movies. That's the stuff movies are made out of. It's, uh, it's really, you know, and that shows the strength of, uh, of being a good historian. Well, that that also shows the strength of having, a, you know, uh, he's actually that's the other thing too. Is in a way he's he's Frank King's been passed away for so long now, and his wife there's like one generation there removed. You know? Yeah. Um, maybe you know right. Well, it's a granddaughter they're talking. Yeah. About. So it's a little yeah. you know you're a little uh, you know maybe twenty years down the road people can uh, you know dissect a bit more uh, you know stuff was right, but it's a little too close, I suppose, now, you know. But anyway, regardless, it's... Uh, but I digress. Yes. Here we are, out of cigarettes, holding hands and yawning. Look how late it gets, two sleepy people, I don't really much in love to say goodnight. Here we are in the cozy chair, picking on a wishbone. From the frigid air, two sleepy people with nothing to say, and too much in love to break away. Do you remember the nights we used to linger in the hall? Father didn't like you at all. I call him Pops, do you remember? The reason why we married in the fall. To rent this little nest and get a bit of rest. Well, here we are, just about the same. Foggy little fella, drowsy little ding. Two sleepy people by dawn's early light. And too much in love to say goodnight Here we are Don't we look a mess Lipstick on your collar Wrinkles in my dress Two sleepy people Who know very well too much 
Now, what's really interesting is the work that you guys did through getting it together. Like, I understand Seth, for years, had compiled <laughs> strips. Like, if anyone's read the Peep shows where Joe Matt talks about his Gasoline Alley collection, yeah. it's kind of like that with the Doug Wright strips where Seth had compiled this massive volume of them. Oh, yeah. yeah. Piecing them together, trying to figure them out. Yeah. And then what happened? Uh, well, he'd been collecting them for like 20 years or something like that. And yeah. then, I don't know, I typed in, I was doing some research online one day, and I, you know, typed in Doug Wright's name in the, and I was working, I think I was working at the CBC Digital Archives at some point, so we had access to, or you can find this online anyways, but I, I typed in his name into the, you know, National Archives and Libraries website, and there was like a Doug Wright font, right? So there's something like, you know, 4,700 pieces of his artwork sitting in the National Archives in Ottawa. So he emailed that to Seth, and he was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Remember him responding back. He was like, I've been collecting this stuff for, you know, 20 years, trying to get a complete collection of clippings of his work, and the guy's gone and donated all of his stuff to uh, the archives, you know. So, um, yeah, so that was kind of a, that's a huge boon. I mean, uh, I can't speak enough to... Uh, well, I, he, I shouldn't say he donated it. It was it was Phyllis, his widow, who donated it in ninety two, ninety three. Um, well, it's partially. I mean, Wright was a was a an uh, he collected everything he did, kept most of his artwork, which is pretty rare for back then, and getting mm-hmm. his artwork back and everything. I mean, Schultz, th- most of his were thrown out. Pardon? Most of Schultz were thrown out. Really? I've heard stories of like how like one person like was I think one of the underground artists back in the sixties was there where they were just uh, you know doing the plates for the strip to reprint them and they just kind of threw the art in the garbage he's like do you mind if I just grab this <laughs> it's better than insulating your uh, your barn with it I mean, stories about that about editors taking the artwork and then insulating their barns with it so you have know, old like Frank King artworks and stuff inside somebody's walls in their barn shows you that disrespect people had for their work but yeah anyway so he was he was uh, he was smart enough to hang on or savvy enough to hang on to all of his work um he was a very fastidious guy that way. Um, and then, yeah, and then Phyllis, I guess, I don't know what, what compelled her, but she donated it all to uh, the archives and they accepted it because they don't accept everything. Mm-hmm. They got like a tax credit and everything for it. Well, and, uh, they, and they hauled it all off in the mid-90s or something and, and brought it all out here. Um, 
so yeah, it was unfortunately it, it, it sat there for a while uncatalogued, which is kind of a. I remember uh, going to see it at some point. Maybe it was Chris Oliveros and I or something, but it was all kind of disorganized. It done nothing with it. But uh, when we contacted them and said we were going to, you know, we were coming down for a few days to pick out artwork for uh, for this book project. There was a, a, a wonderful woman, Mary Margaret. I can't remember her last name, but she spent the better part of a month working double shifts to get it all kind of cataloged. Um, so that was pretty fantastic. So yeah, and that was amazing. That was uh, like an unbelievable find. Uh, you know, I can't imagine having to uh, do it in any other way. But uh, I mean, that was a, a total boon for the for the project to have practically a complete collection of all of his artwork, original artwork, mm-hmm. um, sitting in a in a federal uh, vault somewhere. Not just uh, yellowing newspaper or clippings, or in a in a you know somewhere. Quite frankly, you know, like yeah. so much of the stuff, you know, you know, you think. Uh, you, you, uh, Probably more than half of cartoonists in the past century. It's like some disgruntled ex or wife or something, just you know, trashing all their stuff when they die. You know? <laughs> or the stories of uh, Marvel cartoonists just grabbing pages of Kirby stuff out of the vault there when they're picking up their own pages. Quote oh, that's unquote. right. I, or them do or, or working on both sides of it. That was one other story I heard. You know, taking this yeah. old artwork from Kirby or somebody and just drawing on the other side of it be kind of a coup so uh, yeah so anyway that was that was a huge thing uh, I think it frustrated it was probably a little frustrating for Seth but uh, you know it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that said he's got access to uh, you know to all this complete stuff now so that's, that's pretty awesome and the, one of the things you guys provide in the book um, is that picture of the stacks of magazines yeah that's his complete news, yeah. yeah I think that's that represents because <laughs> it ran in the uh, it ran in the Canadian, well, it ran in weekend, night. well, Canadian and then weekend at Montreal Star, Star Weekly. It changed over the years uh, in terms of who was publishing it, but uh, I think that represents his, yeah, that's his complete uh, collection of, of uh, nipper strips, essentially. He stacked them all up and got somebody to take a photo of them, so that's the sum total of his 15, 20 odd years of amateur, uh, amateur <laughs> historian work. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'd use the term amateur. Well, you know, he'd <laughs> call it amateur. I'm just yeah. saying, it's, it, oh, it, it amounts to, it's not, you know... It I think if, it, if anyone was a professional collector, <laughs> yeah. it would be Seth. That's a good point. <laughs> but it, it amounts to him going to, uh, you know, uh, junk shops and bookstores and flea markets and, and rooting around and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm a lot like that as well. So, I, uh, you know, I uh, applaud him for his efforts. Actually, I should just, somebody should applaud him for those efforts as well because he's done... He, he, it's no small feat for the, the amount of work he's done to, to kind of uh, salvage this aspect of uh, Canadian comics. It's uh, it's contagious, you know. Whether it's with the, you know with his work he does with the, the awards or other stuff, he's uh, he, he takes a real personal uh, professional uh, interest in this stuff, you know, um, which a lot of people wouldn't do, you know, because nobody else. Well, some a few people, I guess, are doing it, but nobody else is really doing it, you know. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a campaign. It's a bit of a mission, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's something that you seem to be looking at is kind of um, understanding what this Canadian identity is, and it, it's been enough time that we can kind of see this development of where it's come from and what it's kind of created or 
become looking at what's coming out now, not just from Seth and Chester, but from all sorts of other cartoons and just seeing what that looks like. Yeah, and it's interesting to see that. I mean, I don't know how I, I stumbled into this uh, bizarre niche market of, of uh, <laughs> you know, Canadian comics history, other than, the, other than I, you know, I've always loved comics and uh, always, you know, Seth's type of comics and well, comics in general. But, um, I, I, you know, I, uh, but it, it is interesting to be involved in the, the awards and then see the best of kind of Canadian comics coming out every year and then also be kind of involved in, um, you know, the, the history, you know. There's a real kind of, uh, it, it's interesting to see the, the, the kind of evolution there, to see if there is a real kind of strong foundation there in the past that most cartoonists aren't aware of, that I wasn't aware of until you start rooting around, you know. Some amazing guys have been doing work, work there, and it's, it's neat to kind of see that uh, that's still going on, you know. Um, so, yeah, anyways. I'm always weary of awards, quite <laughs> frankly. <laughs> but uh, um, but I've, I've got to say that uh, I think it's neat to see um, people come together once a, once a year and get that sense of community, you know, in terms of... Well, why don't we comics. let people know exactly what you're talking about? Oh, I, you're kind of skirting around it. <laughs> everybody knows about the Doug Red Award. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't enough to be involved in the, in the book. Um, uh, I helped found uh, the Doug Red Awards uh, when five years ago, the first to the second TCAF, whenever that was. I just want to say, Doug Wright Awards. Exactly, yeah, it's gold. Doug Wright Awards. That's a pinnacle. I don't know if we can beat that this coming year, but we're gonna have to have like a live stage show to try and uh, to try and figure out. Uh, dance routine. A dance routine. Yeah, we always wanted to have a live band. Seth, Seth and uh, I are always talking about having a band there. You know, to kind of play when somebody comes up on stage, and it's gotta be classic. And then, like, if someone's talking too long, start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Start it up. I want them to play the Barney Miller theme song, I think. That's the song they have to play. It's a great theme song. So, yeah, no, uh, Seth and I co-founded that about uh, uh, five years ago, and I'm, uh, I guess, the director now. Uh, I am the director now, and it's, it's an award for um, Canadian cartooning and comics. Um, so, yeah, so we started that up. Four years. We have three awards we give out. Uh, one for kind of more experimental non-narrative work, one for emerging talent, and one for best book every year. And yeah, so we do that uh, a ceremony once a year, always kind of aligned with the Toronto Comic Arts Festival, um, who are big uh, supporters of us. And uh, yeah, last year we were there. It was a, yeah, it was a, it was a, good it was time. a pretty snappy ceremony. Fantastic host. It was a fantastic host, yeah. i got to say, uh, I'm, I'm so happy. Uh, again, I don't know how we're going to... Why don't you tell people who it was? Oh, it was Don McKellar, who uh, is very well-known in Canada and uh, well-known, I guess, in kind of uh, art film circles outside that. Um, actor, director, writer, um, big comics fan. Big comics fan. Yeah, I think a solid comic. I'm amazed. That's the other thing, too, talking about the community. Uh, it's almost worth going through the, the hard work of getting the awards together just to hang out at the after party every year because that's when you see like we've had some interesting people sit on our jury um, and these are people who have a remarkable like Andrew Coyne for instance who's kind of a you know neocon writer I suppose you could say neocon journalist uh, <laughs> and, he's, uh, and he's well he is I mean call himself maybe a libertarian I think I'm not sure but he has a remarkable depth of, of knowledge of uh, comics and Canadian comics in general, uh, which blew me away. Uh, I chatted with him a bunch about stuff. You know, um, Bob Ray, who had a 
background in mostly kind of European comics, but he was totally game for it. And was really blown away by stuff. And Don, and uh, God, who else? We've had uh, uh, Adam McGoyan. Uh, really? Yeah, I met Adam McGoyan in the third or fourth year. Uh, trying to think other people. Bruce McDonald, the director, was there. Um, so that's kind of neat because it brings that's in people really from neat. other that's Canadian. Parts. That's Canadian art right there. Like those yeah. guys, especially like someone like Don or Adam. Yeah, his his. His uh, his choices were, were, were totally different than everybody else's too. It was really interesting. I'm but curious what his choices were. Uh, can I say that? I have no idea. I don't think you can. Actually. No, I can't. He chose a really complex book for best book that nobody else chose, um, <laughs> or had a really hard time getting through. And it was a really interesting book, and he had a really rousing defense of it. You know, he knew it was kind of a a, a, a dark horse, but it was really interesting. So, yeah, but those I, I find that. Um, <clears throat> you know, of all things, um, you know, like I said, I'm always leery of, I think everybody's leery of award ceremonies in general, because there's so many of them, um, but, yeah. uh, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the work we've done with it. I think it's, uh, we have the benefit of having kind of, you know, uh, we've got we've got Chester Brown and Seth and Jeet involved, you know, and Brian Munn, um, you know, we have other people like Peter Bergamo is kind of a, a consultant. Um, and yourself, you know, we've had you uh, send stuff in in terms of uh, kind of regional uh, selections, and it's it's a it's a growing uh, thing. But it, it it's nice to kind of to I think it's important to recognize you know stuff that's Canadian as opposed to stuff that's just you know I think all that stuff gets it does actually get kind of buried under a lot of other, the Eisner Awards, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. It tends to get. Uh, lost uh, the Canadian stuff for whatever reason. Well, um, the interesting thing is that like something like the Eisners or the you know, the debacle called the Harveys <laughs> um, and and the Schusters, you know, it's all kind of it's comics widespread and, you know, no one is happy with the decisions. But, I mean, you guys are focused on, you know, it's not really mainstream stuff at all like this is yeah we tend, to, we tend to call that out you know and that's just uh i mean the first year was a little different i mean we had uh i think we had a um, the new frontier volume one on it which you know people have said well why is that on it you know but, but I mean, that's a little different it's a little different mainstream. i mean uh you know to me that was a you always have to take the best of whatever year you have you know yeah um but anyways uh, uh yeah, we've tended to, since then to kind of, you know, more often than not, veer towards stuff that, you know, that that has kind of a more uh, literate, I guess, literary quality. I don't want to sound like snobby or something, or ivory it's, tower. Uh, I'll say it's more um, utilizing the media behind a genre, beyond a genre niche. Yeah, and that's, you know, the genre stuff's fine. Like, I read genre stuff. I mean, you know, I love Devil Dinosaur. I'm reading, you know, that new Grant Morrison Batman and Robin comic. Um, you know, the Wednesday comic thing I think is great. But to me, there's always been a division to me in any sort of uh, medium between kind of popular entertainment and, like, art, you yeah. know. And to me, uh, that was an important revelation for me to realize that I could like Die Hard too, and I can read, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, I you can could, love and you it. could watch Crash. Yeah, and I can love, the, like... The Cronenberg version. Or Eight and a Half, or... <laughs> You know what I mean? I could love those two things uh, 
um, you know, kind of they can they can coexist in my mind and have to be ashamed of the entertainment versus you know, like in film. You to me, I've got movies which are entertainment, and then film, which is film. You know, which is a different. You know, you engage in that in a different way, and I kind of see. I don't see why comics should be any different. You've got genre stuff, you know, which is superhero stuff and mystery stuff and whatever, um, you know, and then you've got stuff that I think kind of uh, would fall into a, a more, I don't even know what the hell the term is, you know, but something that's a little more, uh, that aspires to something a little more from a, uh, you know, utilizing the medium um, in a more sophisticated way and then speaking more to kind of the human experience, I suppose. Does that make any sense? Or does that sound... Highfalutin as well. I That's okay. We're a highfalutin show. Really? I don't no, think so. No, we're not. I think you're thinking of another, <laughs> another program. <laughs> That's a joke. That's a dig. I'm just kidding. I'm that, that, trust me, you have to try real hard to offend okay. me. So, yeah. So, I think that's... Um, I think that's uh, that's become our de facto mandate, although it's not written down anywhere. And that's not to begrudge any of the other... Uh, you know, any of the other things, including the Schusters. You know, I think the Schuster guys try really hard mm. and everything is evolving and I think they're you know but I, I think they excel when they're looking at kind of I, I think they're hesitant to call themselves a kind of a genre or a mainstream uh, award but that's kind of what they do that's kind of what the guys are into right yeah and I mean the the kind of I've been involved with the Schuster's a couple of times now and the criteria basically is to be Canadian and it yeah, doesn't really yeah. move beyond that and it's um you but know. generally speaking, like their, their stuff tends to be a little more kind of superhero based or genre based. Again, which is fine. That's yeah. cool. They can have that, that. Why not give awards to that? You know what I mean? But um, yeah. Anyways, and I yeah. think the other. The, the, I mean, I think the other benefit uh, for us is that it's uh, you know we only have three awards, right? So <clears throat> there's not a you know this is not a, a fault of the Schuster's or whatever. But you know, I, I've never been to the Eisner's, but I hear it's a bit of a a three hour. Slog, <laughs> <laughs> a right. journey. But yeah, it's a bit of a. It's a. It's like the Odyssey or something. You know, and it, it takes <laughs> like three hours for the awards to be handed out. It's nominee lists that have like nine. It's like it's it's a funny kind of insidery. I think the fantasy and sci-fi world like this in terms of awards. They want to like recognize everybody. You know, everybody gets an award. <laughs> <laughs> Blue ribbons all around. Yeah, it's like the it's like a, you know the county fair when you know. Everybody gets, you know, a, a nice dry ribbon or something like that. You know, thanks for, thanks for showing up. Every so get, everybody gets a free pass to the uh, to the fair if they uh, if they put a uh, you know giant pumpkin in or something like that. Oh, the giant pumpkin! Sorry, I was just at a county fair last weekend. So we don't have those kind of things in Vancouver. That's crazy. We really? just have well, not at all. No, really. Well, maybe that's it's Vancouver. Like we're 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 a real city, city. <laughs> Or not, okay. Well, you maybe just don't have as much farming, I suppose. Yeah, uh, maybe out in the Fraser Valley, but I don't think they had that kind of sense of community there. Yeah, yeah no. I know not, it's a big not as thing much. It's huge in the States, uh, fall fairs, summer fairs. And I know it's huge in the uh, in the valley, as we call it here, in the Ottawa yeah. Valley. Well, that's just as it. You have a long tradition of community there, mm-hmm. where BC wasn't really uh, as long standing community. Beyond the Doug Wright project... Yeah. Going back to where we started, um, are there still interests? You're talking about the uh, the larger Canadian cartoons project that Seth was first originally interested in doing. You know, it's. Uh, I certainly hope so. I mean, I think all eyes to some degree 
terms of that uh, or, or um, sales of the, the great book, right? It's like anything else. Like if mm-hmm. it, you know, goes through the roof or you know, sells out, then uh, definitely you'd have more of an interest in that type of thing. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know what the... I think they were pretty steady. I don't know what the sales are like. We'll see after Christmas. I'm hoping to get a big bump after Christmas. So. Well, it is red. It is red and shiny. It's a Christmas color. Yeah, you know, the only... the only ne- It's not a negative at all, but it, it's a funny... Uh, I remember one of the Doug Wright volunteers suggesting this at TCAF when DQ, uh, T&Q was selling it was to put, a, to put the price point on it, right? Because he said he wouldn't even pick it up because he assumed it was like $65. And I was like, no, it's only 40 bucks. And he was totally shocked. Which is funny. I've heard a couple other people say that too. When they see it, it's this big shiny thing that uh, you know it, it, it doesn't seem unapproachable. It seems completely approachable. It just seems maybe like, oh, this is going to be out of my range. This is such a lush. But they have a fantastic uh, price on it. So um, yeah, so I encourage everybody to buy it. Obviously, but um, <laughs> in terms of the larger book, I'm not sure. We'll see what happens with the the, the second volume of this. And I don't know if uh, if uh, I know D&Q has plans to actually put out um, some smaller kind of books, kind of like a, I don't know what it'll be called, but they want to do something that's kind of like a, a smaller books at a lower price range. Like their like petite livre? Kind of. They'd, be, they'd have color in them. They'd be about, I don't know, like under 20 bucks. And the idea would be to collect, have a book de- dedicated to, um, you know, George Fayer or Jimmy Fry's or... Um, other Canadian cartoonists. You'd have, I mean, we might even be called like Giants of the North or something like that, like tied in with our Hall of Fame. Yeah. So you have these affordable books that look at, they wouldn't uh, have extensive uh, biographies in the beginning or anything. They'd be mostly, uh, um, I don't know if I'm, you know, tipping the tipping their hand on that, but I know there was talk about that and also doing kind of smaller uh, volumes of kind of uh, complete. Doug Wright as well, you know, like a couple of years of Doug Wright in this affordable little, you know, package. Kind of like what, you know, what Fantagraphics does with uh, repackaging the uh, Love and Rockets material. They've been really successful with that. Yeah. Um, They're continuous repackaging. (laughs) And they do it, they're savvy with it, though. You know, I love that Locust book, the big book. You know, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed reading that, considering it's so connected to the individual uh, Love and Rockets comics, you know, Mm -hmm. such a part of those covers. My 20s, yeah, they were such a big part of it, and to see it like that, I was like, oh, and it's bridged as well, you know, like it's this piece of taken out and, and moved around, um, but to read it as one story, it was a, it's an eye-opener to me, so it'd be neat to, you know, to see them do this as well. I, I, I mean, God, God bless Chris and, and Peggy and stuff, because they really believe in the work, you know, and... Uh, and Peggy's not even Canadian. She's not Canadian, but again, you know, I think <laughs> <laughs> she's... Uh, she knows good cartooning when she sees it. And so does Tom, uh, you know, and, and God bless him because, uh, you know, I'm going to call it God's work, but it's good work, <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, if they didn't, you know, I just realistically, you know, if uh, they didn't publish it, who would we go to, you know? I mean, it's, they're, they're kind of, in the, uh, to me, like the premier publisher in North America of comics. So it seemed like a natural thing for them to, to grab onto this sort of thing, you know. Anyway, yeah. So hopefully <laughs> more of those uh, more of those things come out, and maybe after the the next uh, right book comes out, we can shop around a larger book that's kind of a mix of images and, and text because it's a fascinating story, you know. Um, mm-hmm. All these guys. I mean, uh, between George Fair and uh, Jimmy Fry and Peter Wally, and um, geez, like 
really interesting stories, Canadian, and then just stories in general of their, you know, of their lives and the, the role they played in various things. You know, they were just clicked right into uh, George Fayer, you know, new Pierre Burton, new uh, Woody Allen, new all these guys, and uh, and yet so few people know about them, which is kind of unfortunate. So. Do you have any uh, web resources on any of this? On any of these guys, there's some yeah. stuff out there. I mean, I know uh, Sequential Ryan Munn has put some stuff up, and I have some original fair artwork and some rarities and stuff. But it's too too busy and uh, adult to ever get them on. <laughs> <laughs> but that is something we we'd love to do on uh, on uh, our uh, our pitiful website, our sad website. We'd love to be able to get up some uh, some resources online to have stuff on there too, so people can see the stuff. But uh, people do it. It's just it's it's you just have to kind of root around for it a bit. There's some Jimmy Fry stuff. Uh, there's a website out there dedicated to Jimmy Fry. And, and you had some of his stuff available at TCAF for people to look at? Yeah, that was amazing, yeah. That was, I couldn't believe the family did that. It's uh, to see his originals, and uh, I was like drooling looking at all that stuff, you know. I, I love that strip, and I know a lot of other people outside of Seth and I and Jeet uh, really love it as well. I know uh, Joe's a big fan, you know. So, um, yeah, you know, I think his interest... Uh, it could, could be pretty wide. It was unique to see all that stuff. His family was really fantastic. They have tons of his artwork as well. So, so that's really good. Yeah. Excellent. It is excellent. Well, I highly recommend folks checking out the, the Doug Wright collection. I enjoyed it. And uh, what's really fascinating is in the design work. Um, Seth did the wonderful shiny red cover with the, with the die cut with the little nipper yelling in a embossed. And over time, the red has rubbed onto the white page, except for where the die cut is. Oh, really? So when you open it up, it creates a little frame. Like a little halo around? Yeah. I, I'm going to check out uh, my copy of that. It's, it's, it's really neat how that's happened. I wonder if that's on purpose. I doubt it, but a good... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, maybe I shouldn't doubt it with Seth. <laughs> it's more like, well, let's see, this paper, I've got a book from 1948, and I noticed that it's rubbed off. And <laughs> <laughs> I know he's a big... Uh, he put uh, even more so than the, you know he's designed a lot of stuff like the peanut stuff and he put his heart and soul into this mm-hmm. um, the only other project I can think of that he put as much work into design wise is probably his dad's book right Manic uh, Beans of beans. Black Tea yeah. you really feel it in that you can feel the the time and the uh, energy and the emotion and I think it's the same thing with this uh, he really uh, you know even if you're just curious about the comics is worth picking up just to just to flip through to see how we put this thing together because it's, uh, it's, it's a bravura piece of design for sure. It's definitely a testament of his uh, admiration. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt, which is awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me, Brad. Thanks for taking an hour of your time <laughs> in beautiful Vancouver. Anytime, anytime. Awesome. Well, uh, I look forward to uh, more volumes and I guess I'll see you at uh, TCAF next year. Hot dog. Hot dog. I'm, I'm right. buying the first beer. <laughs> There'll be plenty. We are yep. Canadian. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Brad. See you, Robin.
Yeah. 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 Yeah.